I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Is hypnotherapy a quaint relic of a bygone era, or could it be a cutting-edge tool for pain relief and stress reduction? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. Franz Mesmer made a huge splash with his discovery of animal magnetism. It became known as mesmerism. Today, it's evolved into hypnotherapy. Our guest today is one of the country's leading experts on the value of hypnotherapy in clinical settings. Psychiatrist Dr. David Spiegel is director of the Center on Stress and Health at Stanford University School of Medicine. He'll offer you a tiny taste of a hypnosis section, so stay tuned. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, how hypnosis can help your health. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, with cases of COVID-19 on the rise, a new study deserves attention. While some people recover from the infection within a few weeks or months, Others are still suffering up to two years after coming down with the coronavirus. People who were hospitalized for COVID-19 are at the greatest risk of lasting health problems and death. But even those who had mild cases may experience any of more than 20 medical conditions. This information comes from an analysis of data from nearly 140,000 veterans who had a SARS-CoV-2 infection and almost 6 million patients who had remained uninfected. VA patients who had been hospitalized with COVID were at a higher risk of death for the subsequent two years than people who had never been infected. Although many people gradually improved, Even after two years, a significant number were not back to their original state of health. They were more likely to experience trouble with blood clots, kidney problems, digestive disorders, diabetes, and cardiovascular complications. There's growing interest in how viral infections may play an important role in the development of dementia. A new study in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease explores the link between routine vaccinations and a reduced risk for Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. The investigators reviewed 16 million medical records from an insurance claims database. About 1.6 million senior citizens were followed for more than eight years. Those who were vaccinated for tetanus and diphtheria were 30% less likely to receive a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Shingles vaccinations lowered the risk by 25%. Pneumonia vaccines also reduced the likelihood of developing dementia by about 27%. These are relative risk reductions. Absolute risk dropped by 2-3%. to 3%. Such results suggest an unanticipated benefit from vaccinations in general and shingles vaccinations in particular. There's a popular saying, use it or lose it. Does it apply to your brain? A new study of approximately 280,000 volunteers in the UK Biobank suggests that it does. These people signed up with the Biobank between 2006 and 2010 when they were at least 40 but not older than 69. They completed a number of cognitive tests during the seven years of follow-up. 
In addition, at the start of the study, they filled out a comprehensive questionnaire that asked about their participation in adult education classes. During the study, about 1% of the volunteers developed dementia. Those who had participated in adult education classes were 19% less likely to be among them than those who had not. They maintained their fluid intelligence and nonverbal reasoning better, too, although classes didn't seem to affect visual-spatial memory or reaction time. The authors conclude, accordingly, participation in such classes could reduce the risk of developing dementia. Systemic oral treatment with corticosteroids tends to reduce bone strength and contribute to fractures. Scientists have been unsure whether that risk also applies to people using inhaled corticosteroids. A study of more than 87,000 patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, suggests that people using inhaled corticosteroids to treat their breathing difficulties are at higher risk of breaking a bone. The investigators analyzed 44 randomized controlled trials that compared inhaled corticosteroids to non-steroid treatments. Inhaled steroids alone did not increase the risk of fractures significantly. However, people using steroids in combination with other drugs for COPD were 30 to 50% more likely to break a bone. The risk from taking budesonide with a meter-dose inhaler was especially high, about 75% greater than for people not using corticosteroids for their COPD at all. Older patients and those with more severe COPD were at the greatest fracture risk from inhaled corticosteroid use in combination with other medications. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Hypnosis has been a healing practice for hundreds of years. Why doesn't modern medicine use it more often? Many people have misconceptions about hypnosis. They may think of it as a stage performance. But clinical hypnosis can be surprisingly effective to treat a range of conditions, from anxiety and stress to insomnia or pain. Why don't we know more about this powerful tool for healing? We are delighted to be talking with one of the country's leading experts on hypnotherapy. Dr. David Spiegel is Wilson Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Director of the Center on Stress and Health, and Medical Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiegel is the co-founder and Chief Scientific Officer of Reverie, an interactive hypnosis app. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. David Spiegel. Thanks very much, Terry. I'm very glad to be here with you. Dr. Spiegel, for those listeners who are just not very familiar with the history of hypnosis, can you give us a quick thumbnail? Who was Dr. Franz Mesmer, and how did this whole thing get started? Uh, sure, Joe. It is an interesting history. Um, it, it, hypnosis, or what Mesmer called animal magnetism, uh, is actually the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. The first time a talking interaction between a doctor and a patient um, is thought to have therapeutic potential. 
And despite being the oldest, it's also, I think, the the hidden asset of psychotherapy that has been underdeveloped in this last 250 years. Uh, and that's why we developed Reverie, to try and get it to people. Um, Mesmer himself thought that people's mental and physical disorders were due to uh, misdirected magnetic fields in their bodies. And so he tried to redirect them with um, vats full of iron filings. They would come next to them, try to correct their magnetic fields. Some people would go into altered mental states of some kind or would swoon. And many of them started to feel better. Uh, Mesmer, as soon as he got some notoriety, left his wife and family in Vienna and moved to Paris, where he competed very successfully with the leading doctors of the day. Now, keep in mind that if you were sick in 18th century Paris, the most likely treatment would be bloodletting. Um, uh, Voltaire wrote to his brother, we did everything we could to save father's life. We even sent the doctors away. Um, and uh, Mesmer... <laughs> Mesmer competed very successfully. His office was bright and cheerful. He had patients encouraging one another there, whereas doctors' offices at the time were kind of grim, dark places where you got the bad news. And Mesmer got so popular, he was the go-to doctor, that the other physicians got King Louis to convene a commission to investigate him. Um, it included our own Benjamin Franklin, who was having a very good time in Paris then. It included the famous chemist Lavoisier, who developed the principles of oxygen chemistry. And shortly before he was beheaded in the French Revolution, also came up with the idea of the gross national product. Brilliant guy. The other member of the commission, another member, uh, was a man well known for his work in uh, pain control, Dr. Guillotin, the inventor of the guillotine. He kind of created the mind-body problem. And this panel concluded that what Mesmer was doing was nothing but heated imagination. Well, actually, that is not a terribly incorrect conclusion, but heated imagination can be a very useful therapeutic tool, and that's a big part of what we do using hypnosis, teaching people to access their own ability to control their bodies. One of the biggest misunderstandings about hypnosis is that you lose control. Um, and that comes from everybody having seen some stage show hypnotist making a fool out of the football coach by having him dance like a ballerina. That's not what hypnosis is. His, hypnosis is an ability to control your state of mind and your state of body as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of those misconceptions. What are the most common ones? And why is it that you actually don't lose control? I think that is a common misconception. It is, Terry, because all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. I can't hypnotize anybody who isn't hypnotizable, and about one out of four adults are just not hypnotizable. But to the extent that you are, you naturally shift into mental states. People who are hypnotizable have experiences in movies, for example, of getting so caught up in the movie that they forget they're watching a movie. Hypnosis has been called believed in imagination. So people who are hypnotizable have this ability to dissociate, put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness, to control physiological function, to help themselves uh, relax their muscles or tense their muscles, depending on what they're reacting to. They have tremendous ability to control pain, to reduce or eliminate pain. Um, and, and I have patients with severe arthritis or other problems who are able to mentally 
disconnect themselves uh, from pain. Yesterday, I saw a retired professor here who um, has uh, had had viral uh, neuralgia. Um, uh, didn't get, unfortunately, the uh, the shot that could prevent it, and he has had terrible pain. When he lies down and goes into a state of self hypnosis, the pain is gone. And so um, it's a remarkable skill. It's an ability people can learn to use. It's not a liability. Dr. Spiegel, can you tell us how you got interested in hypnosis? A little bit about your background. Well, uh, Joe, it's it's something of a uh, genetic illness in my family. Both of my parents were psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. My father was trained um, to use hypnosis when he was in combat in World War II in North Africa. And he used it to help uh, soldiers with combat stress reactions to help uh, control pain. And so, as you can imagine, the discussions at the dinner table were pretty interesting. And um, uh, I got to watch some films of him inducing hypnosis in patients with dissociative disorders, and they could shift from one dissociative state to another. So by the time I got to medical school, my parents told me I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be. So <laughs> here I am. I took him up on it, actually. And the thing that got me hooked myself personally was in my third year as a medical student at Harvard, I was told by the nurse, your next patient, Spiegel, is an asthmatic in room 342. And I followed the sound of the wheezing down the hall. And there is this pretty 15-year-old redhead, knuckles white, struggling for breath, mother crying, nurse in the room. And I didn't know what else to do. They tried epinephrine times twice, times two. It hadn't worked. They were thinking of general anesthesia as the next step and then starting her on steroids. And I said, I have just started my hypnosis course. I thought I got to learn more about this. And I, so I got her hypnotized. I said, would you like to learn a breathing exercise? So she nodded. I got her hypnotized. And then I realized panicky that I didn't, hadn't gotten to asthma in the course yet. So I just said to her something very complicated. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, she's lying back in her bed. She's not wheezing anymore. Her mother stopped crying. The nurse ran out of the room. My intern comes looking for me. I figure he's going to pat me on the back and say, what the hell did you do, Spiegel? And he said, the nurse has filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor uh, that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. Now, Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws. That's not on the list. And her mother was standing right next to me when I did it. So he said, well, you're going to have to stop doing it. And, and I said, why? He said, well, it could be dangerous. And I said, you're going to put her on steroids and give her general anesthesia, and you think my talking to her is dangerous? Take me off the case if you want, but I'm not going to tell my patient something I know is not true. So over the weekend, the intern, the resident, the chief resident, the attending had a council of war, and they came back on Monday with a radical idea. They said, um, why don't we ask the patient? Oh, my goodness, yes. What an so, idea. Very radical. What a concept. So this 15-year-old girl who had been hospitalized twice in the previous three months had one subsequent hospitalization, but went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. And I thought that anything that could help a patient that much, that fast, that safely, um, uh, had to be worth looking into and violate a non-existent Massachusetts law. <laughs> and, and so, you know, if you ever want, it was a, it was a life-changing moment for me because if you ever wanted just visible in your face evidence that a technique like this can help not just with psychological problems, but with physical problems, there it was. And so I've been doing it ever since, and I've used hypnosis with about 7,000 people in my career. What kinds of problems does it work best for? It's very helpful for pain control, uh, remarkably effective. 
for controlling pain, and that's particularly important these days. You know, tragically, we have lost some 300,000 Americans in the last 10 years to opioid overdoses. Uh, opioids are good for dealing with acute pain, and there's a new study just out along with a lot of others that shows that it's really not helpful for chronic pain, that over time it's no better than placebo, but it's addicting and it can kill you. You can go to sleep and not wake up in the morning because opioid receptors that control breathing are different from the ones that control pleasure and pain. And you can habituate to those, but you don't habituate to the ones that, that suppress breathing. So a lot of people die. Prince, the wonderful musician Prince, died of an opioid, opioid overdose. He wasn't trying to kill himself. He was just on too many opioids. So having a safe and effective way of controlling pain uh, is a very valuable asset that we, we underutilize. It's very good for helping with stress. We, we approach stress and reverie from the bottom up rather than what normally happens when you're stressed about something is your muscles tense, you start to sweat, you breathe faster, your heart rate goes up, and then you notice that your body's reacting that way. We call that interoception. And then you think, oh, God, this must be really bad because I'm feeling terrible. So you worry some more, and your body says, uh-oh, he's worrying more. So it's like a snowball rolling downhill. With hypnosis, you can get people to imagine they're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. Get your body relaxed. That's the one thing about the stressor you know you can do something about. You can do something about your body's reaction. Then when your body's feeling better, you say, oh, all right, I've already made some headway here. Now, what can I do to deal with the stressor? And so we use an imaginary screen to have people picture the problem on one side and try out possible solutions on the other. We find uh, with people using Reverie that within 11 minutes, they report significant reductions in their level of self-reported stress. So the nice thing is people will know right away whether it's likely to help them or not. You're listening to Dr. David Spiegel. He's Wilson Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Director of the Center on Stress and Health, and Medical Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiegel is the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Reverie, an interactive hypnosis app. After the break, we'll learn more about hypnosis and how it can help pain, stress, and anxiety. Does hypnosis have side effects we should know about? Why haven't more doctors embraced medical hypnotherapy? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocoa Via Dietary Supplements, during this National Wellness Month, you can take care of your heart and brain health by adding cocoa flavanols to your daily routine. 
for a strong heart and cognitive support. How can Cocovia be a part of your wellness habits? More information at cocovia.com. We're exploring the clinical potential of hypnotherapy today on The People's Pharmacy. How can it be used to promote health and relieve stress and anxiety? What can hypnosis do to ease hard-to-treat pain? Is there scientific support for this therapeutic approach? We're talking with Dr. David Spiegel. He is Wilson Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Director of the Center on Stress and Health, and Medical Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiegel is the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Reverie, an interactive hypnosis app. So, Dr. Spiegel, you were just talking about the benefits of hypnosis, especially for things like stress and anxiety. And, you know, a lot of your colleagues prescribe anti-anxiety drugs that are very hard to get off once you get started on them. You know, we're talking about, uh, you know, Valium and uh, Librium. And, oh, my goodness, there are now so many of them. Xanax, Xanax, of course, being a classic example. And you also talked about pain. What else is hypnotherapy good for? It's very useful for getting to sleep. Hypnosis is not sleep, but it can help you get to sleep. Uh, We find that people can do it by getting their bodies comfortable, as I mentioned, with stress. And then if they're preoccupied with things, with worries, I just say, imagine you're watching your home movie. Just picture it on an imaginary screen, but outside your body. Just let the thoughts flow through you. And um, we, we were a little worried at Reverie because uh, we were getting good feedback from people about pain and stress. Their levels went down. We were getting just very few reports, despite the fact that it's our most heavily used app. And we started asking our users, why aren't you telling us how it's doing? And they said, we didn't want to tell you anything. We just wanted to fall asleep. So a lot of them went to sleep or got back to sleep. And I realized also that uh, in some ways, uh, you know, we try to make the app almost as good as being in the office with me. But I realized for insomnia, it's actually better because hopefully I won't be in your bedroom at three in the morning when you're not able to go back to sleep, but you can hear my voice on the app. So we find it very helpful for people with insomnia of various kinds. We also use it for habit control, like stopping smoking. We've found in our research that we get 19% of people who use it to stop smoking. Now, I wish it were more, but that's not bad. That's as good uh, as you get with varenicline or bupropion, the, the, the meds that are used to help people stop smoking. We do it by having people focus not on fighting smoking. Telling yourself don't smoke is like telling yourself don't think about purple elephants. You know, mm-hmm. what do you think about? Instead, we tell you, my. I want you to think about these three things in hypnosis. For my body, smoking's a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. So you focus on thinking of your body as if it were your baby or your pet. Would you ever put cigarette smoke into the lungs of your baby or your pet? No. Well, think of your body the same way. Respect and protect your body. And so when you focus on it this way, the urge to smoke is not the issue. The urge is to be a good person and protect your body. So you can feel better immediately when you make this commitment. And we find that about one out of five people do that. Dr. Spiegel, when you mention drugs like varenicline and bupropion, when you mention opioids, we talked about benzodiazepines for all these various things that people are finding hypnosis helpful for, all of these drugs have 
side effects. They all have adverse effects. Yep. Are there adverse effects to hypnosis? Um, it's a good question, and the the, the basic answer is no. Uh, it's just a state of a naturally occurring state of highly focused attention, and um, it either the the worst thing that happens most of the time with hypnosis is sometimes it doesn't work. That's fine, but compare. And I'm a physician. I use all of those drugs uh, when I think it's appropriate. Uh, but it is not habit forming. In fact, the issue is to teach people to use it regularly, and and many do, but not everyone does. Um, but no, it has no side effects uh, analogous to the side effects we get from benzodiazepines and analgesics. There are people who worry that maybe I won't come out of hypnosis. Yeah. Maybe I'll be stuck in this weird place. <laughs> Um, yes, th that is a concern. I've never lost a patient in hypnosis. I've had a few people who get very strong emotional reactions to the state. They're often people who have a history of trauma, um, who somehow start having a f kind of a flashback. And flashbacks are hypnotic-like states where people don't just remember, but feel like they're reliving the trauma without being aware of what, what's gonna, how it's going to turn out, which is part of what's so terrifying about trauma. But if people can slip into these states, they can come out of them again. And we've had remarkably little difficulty um, using it with people. And it is, I can definitively say as a physician, that it is vastly safer than any of these medications. I'd like to share a quick story with you. Many years ago, we interviewed Reynolds Price. He was a famous writer. He was a professor at Duke University, and he had developed cancer that had wrapped itself around his spinal cord oh and he had had to have pretty severe radiation therapy that put him in a wheelchair and in intractable chronic pain hmm. and someone taught him self-hypnosis and he said you know i live with a kind of pain that would have the normal person writhing on the floor incapable of doing anything but screaming. He said, self-hypnosis has made my life bearable. And he went on to write many books afterwards that mm. were just magnificent. So an N of one, but um, a powerful, powerful N of one. Professor Reynolds Price was just an extraordinary human being who, who benefited from hypnosis. I'm wondering if there's any science here because our listeners, they, they, they're kind of used to the idea of randomized controlled trials that have to do with pharmaceuticals. And they wonder, well, you know, I, I, I saw that stage hypnosis thing. It seemed a little hokey. Is there any science to support this practice? It's an excellent question, Joe. And I and my colleagues have been doing that. I've been doing it for half a century. And uh, I, I, it's a wonderful story. I had not heard of his experience before, but it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, we have science about how it works in the brain, and we have evidence that it works. How does it work in the brain? We've done studies using what are called event-related potentials. They're EEGs, time-locked to presenting a series of shocks. I had a group of highly hypnotizable Stanford students receiving the shocks. We recorded their electrical response. And then I hypnotized them and said, your hand is in cool, in ice water, cool, tingling, and numb. Filter the hurt out of the pain. There are three components to the evoked response. The P100 is a tenth of a second after the signals are 
recorded in the brain. The P100 disappeared in the hypnosis condition. These students are all getting exactly identical shocks. The P200 and P300, which are bigger to the extent that the signal is either surprising or important for solving a task, were half as big. So what that means is that within a tenth of a second, the brain is cutting down by at least 50% the intensity of the processing of these pain signals. We know how that works also because when we hypnotize people using functional magnetic resonance imaging to study it, we find that they turn down activity in this what we call the salience network, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. It's part of the pain network in the brain. It's the part of the brain that when you hear a loud noise outside and you think it might be a gunshot, um, you interrupt everything else you're doing. If you turn down activity in that salience network, you're less likely to be distracted and you can turn down the intensity of signals like pain. The strain in pain lies mainly in the brain. What comes into the brain through the lateral spinal thalamic tract is pain signals, but what you interpret as pain and how you react to it is how your brain processes those signals in various regions, including the anterior cingulate. And it is very clear now that the brain has many mechanisms. There is a study at University of Montreal by Pierre Rainville showing that if you tell people like I did before, they filter the hurt out of the pain, you reduce activity in the somatosensory cortex, the parietal lobe in the brain. If you tell them instead it's there but it won't bother you, you turn down activity in the anterior cingulate cortex. So different words will help the brain reduce the pain in hypnosis in different ways. So we know how it works in the brain. Pain is not a uniform signal. It's how the brain interprets the pain that makes the difference. Does it work? I'll tell you, one of my frustrations, Joe and Terry, is we published a paper in The Lancet in 2000, leading British medical, British medical journal, 241 patients having arterial cutdowns to thread catheters to chemoembolize tumors in the liver or visualize artery stenosis. It's a two-and-a-half-hour procedure. We don't use general anesthesia. It's painful and anxiety-provoking. One group got standard care, which is push a button and you get opioids in your bloodstream. The second is that plus having a friendly nurse providing emotional support, and the third is self-hypnosis. By the end of an hour and a half, the people in standard care had pain levels of 5 out of 10. The ones with a friendly nurse had pain levels of 3 out of 10. The hypnosis group, 1 out of 10. And they were using half as much opioids. Wow. The, they had, when you looked at anxiety, it was five for standard care, three for nurses, zero for hypnosis. I was afraid they were all dead or something because they just weren't anxious at all. Their procedures got done 17 minutes quicker on average, so it saved money as well as, uh, as distress. Um, they had fewer complications. And now, if I had published a paper like that, randomized clinical trial, um, uh, in a major medical journal with a drug, Every hospital in the country would be using it now. Is Absolutely. every hospital in the country using hypnosis? No. So there is this prejudice against these psychological control mechanisms that are scientifically understood and scientifically proven. It's hard to understand why not every hospital would jump on an intervention like this. Or every pain center. Or, I mean, why hasn't? The medical profession embraced hypnotherapy. It has a long history, and now you and your colleagues have demonstrated the science. I would think that not just every hospital, but every clinic in America would be very interested in hypnotherapy. 
You know, that's beautifully stated, and I, I wish you were right, but frankly, we're the Rodney Dangerfield of medical treatments. You know, we don't get no respect. They, he said they once asked him to leave a bar so they could start happy hour. You know, it's, I don't understand it except this. I'm a psychiatrist, and among medical specialties, psychiatry is kind of not high at the top, at the top of the list because somehow psychological variables just seem less real and less scientific than physical ones. Uh, the body is a complex organism. The brain is connected to every part of the body. So the idea that the brain can realistically and effectively control the way the body feels and acts is obvious, but we don't see it that way. We think still of medicine like an auto mechanic, you know, just replace broken parts. And that's not the best way to treat people. And so you've articulated it very well. It's a source of endless frustration to me, and I'm just doing what I can to get the word out and make the treatment available to people. Dr. Spiegel, a little while ago, we talked about a variety of serious problems that people can overcome or help to control with hypnosis. How long does it take before people will notice that their insomnia, for example, is getting better or that they are uh, able to stop smoking? The coolest thing, Terry, about using the app is that for insomnia, you're going to have a night or two of trying to sleep to find out. But many people find uh, that they're, um, that within a night or two, they're starting to sleep better and they're surprised sometimes. Um, with pain and stress, you can feel it within 10 minutes. You know, does going into self-hypnosis, filtering the hurt out of the pain, getting your body floating actually make you feel better? And for 90% of the people who try it for stress and pain, Within 11 or 12 minutes, they know whether it's going to work. You know, even if you get a prescription, you got to go to the pharmacy, get it, and let the drug start to take an effect. With hypnosis, you can tell right away whether it's likely to help you or not. Tell us more about the app, please. Reverie, uh, you and your colleagues developed this app. How does it work? And, and who does it work for? And it's spelled R-E-V-E-R-I, correct? That's absolutely correct. Yes. Thank you, Joe. You can download it from the App Store if you have an iOS phone or from Google Play if uh, you have an Android. What happened is about three years ago, I was speaking at a Brain Mind Summit at Stanford, and uh, an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur named uh, Ariel Poehler came up to me after my talk and said, hey, you know, uh, Alexa is pretty good at helping you get started with a talking, an interactive talking app. Uh, you want to build an app together. So I said, great. So we did one for smoking control. Um, and uh, we found that 19% of people were stopping smoking. That's not bad. Uh, it was a little clunky to use, and some people didn't like having their speakers listening to them day and night. So uh, after a year or so, uh, we formed a little company to build an app. And we now have a very efficiently functioning app that people can download and use for a whole variety of problems. Uh, including stress, pain. It's it's a way of learning a health and wellness skill that can help most people deal with problems like uh, eating well, um, exercising regularly, um, uh, stopping smoking, dealing with drinking problems, um, and pain and stress. And so uh, we we I hope that because the uptake of techniques that are simple and effective like this has been relatively slow, that we can go direct to consumer and let people try it for themselves. Well, I love this idea because I suspect that there are a limited number of hypnotherapists. 
Yes. And therefore, not all of our listeners are going to be able to find a hypnotherapist. They, they've just learned that, wait, here's a therapy that doesn't have side effects and it has these profound abilities to help control pain and insomnia, which is a very widespread problem. And now maybe I could just go to the app store and download R-E-V-E-R-I, Reverie, and I could do it myself. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, you know, I, I we take a certain amount of blame. We used to be very kind of controlling and precious about it. One of my colleagues said we've been treating it like Golden Fort Knox. And there are situations where you want to have a licensed and trained professional help you with it. But for the vast majority of problems, you don't need that. And so you're right. It, there are comparatively few well-trained licensed professionals who know how to use hypnosis. They are available around the country. Um, there's a Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis. You can look it up on the web and get referrals or the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. But compared to the extent of the problem to, you know, uh, 25% of Americans with anxiety disorders and millions of people with pain, um, it, it, it makes sense to make widely available these straightforward, simple, and safe approaches that can help a whole lot of people. You're listening to Dr. David Spiegel. He is Wilson Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Director of the Center on Stress and Health, and Medical Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiegel is the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Reverie, an interactive hypnosis app. Although we're very enthusiastic about this tool, we should make clear that we have no financial relationship with Dr. Spiegel or with his Reverie app. It's time for a short break. And after the break, how would you know if you're hypnotizable? Do you need to be able to visualize for hypnosis to work? If so, oh man, I would be totally out of luck. Dr. Spiegel will offer you a little taste of what a hypnosis session is like. How can you find a health professional to help you with hypnosis? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro, Coco Extract. August is National Wellness Month, which means it's a great time to refocus on self-care and healthy habits. Consider adding clinically proven cocoa flavanols to your daily regimen. Whether you're looking to support your heart health or brain health this summer, you can achieve your goals with Cocovia. All Cocovia supplements contain the number one bioactive flavanols, CocoPro, backed by 20 years of research. These powerful bioactive nutrients are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular health and improve cognitive function as you age. Get 20% off all Cocovia products from August 21st through September 5th using the discount code wellnesspod. That's wellness 
W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S-P-O-D, wellnesspod, at cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. During this National Wellness Month, you can take care of your heart and brain health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for a strong heart and cognitive support. How can Cocovia be a part of your wellness habits? More information at cocovia.com. Today we're discussing the therapeutic benefits of hypnosis. What does the process of hypnosis sound like? Our guest today will give you a short taste of his therapeutic technique. Just make sure you're not listening while you're driving or doing anything that requires your full attention. We are talking with one of the country's most respected hypnotherapists. Dr. David Spiegel is Wilson Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences director of the Center on Stress and Health, and medical director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiegel is the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I, an interactive hypnosis app. Dr. Spiegel, I believe you have mentioned that in order for people to benefit from hypnosis, they have to be hypnotizable. That's correct. How many of us are hypnotizable, and how would we know? Um, uh, there are, I would say, as adults, about uh, three-quarters of adults are at least somewhat hypnotizable, about 15% very hypnotizable. Um, hypnotizability hits its peak in latency years in childhood. So what that means is that all eight-year-olds are in trances all the time. As you know, if you call your eight-year-old in for dinner and he's outside playing, it's why work and play are all the same for kids. Um, it's kind of a shame we try to make them into little adults before they need to be. But as we go through adolescence, we develop what Piaget called uh, formal operations, where we start to value logic uh, and understanding over experience. And some of us lose that hypnotic ability. Um, but by the time you're 21, your hypnotizability becomes as stable a trait as your IQ over a 25-year interval. And and so we can test it. We have an app. Part of the app is to test your hypnotizability. So in about five minutes, you can do a structured hypnotic experience, making your hand feel light floating up in the air like a balloon. If you pull it down, it wants to float right back up. And to the extent that that happens you are more hypnotizable, and the app will tell you exactly how hypnotizable you are. There's no harm in trying uh, hypnosis with the Reverie app, even if you're not hypnotizable, because part of it, it, it with, uh, the book, the, the textbook I co-authored with my late father, Trance and Treatment, indicates that the hypnotic state is part of it, but the way the treatment strategy is also important. And we try to help people focus on what they're for, not what they're against. And so... But people who are more hypnotizable will find it easier and quicker uh, to go into the hypnotic state and apply the method of dealing with the problem. Dr. Spiegel, I'm wondering if I might be hypnotizable because I suffer from a rare condition. I think it's called, and I always pronounce it incorrectly, aphantasia. Oh, yeah. 
And so I can't see stuff. When I close right. my eyes, it's black. There, right. I can't, there's no mind's eye for me. Yes. But does that mean that you couldn't hypnotize me? Oddly enough, uh, no. I would have thought so. And we actually did a study of this some years ago, and we found no correlation between visual imagery ability and hypnotizability. And that really surprised me because I use visual imagery all the time with people I'm hypnotizing. But do you ever get so caught up in a good movie that you kind of forget you're watching the movie? Oh, and, and, of course. There you go. So that means you can go into a state of focused attention. It's just that it doesn't take the form of visualization, cool. but that's not an obstacle. Now, what about finding a therapist? You mentioned a couple of organizations where people could go online and see if there were a therapist in their area. Yes, you can do that. The, the, those two societies, sceh.us on the web and, and asch.net uh, are places you can go to look. Often um, there are local chapters of uh, professional hypnosis societies that can help. There are a lot of other people uh, listed who have no formal training. And if you're going, what we're doing here is a health and wellness skill. There are people, a lot of people can benefit from that. But if you're going to be diagnosed, so rather than being the person who decides what your problem is, you're looking to a professional to determine with you what the problem is. Um, you want a licensed and trained uh, professional. So uh, it, but it is possible to get professional help. And there are some problems like severe uh, post-traumatic stress disorder where hypnosis may be of help, but you need a licensed and trained professional to help you do it. Sure. Um, what about online? I mean, during the pandemic, people all of a sudden learned that they could interact with health professionals via Zoom or some other online resource. And psychotherapy kind of blossomed because you could actually do it online. Can you do online hypnotherapy? I'm doing it all the time. That's been the majority of my practice during the pandemic. I see people remotely. I test their hypnotizability remotely. Instead of my stroking the hand, I have them use their other hand to stroke their hand and let it float up in the air like a balloon. And it works fine. Now, I wonder if this is even going to be doable or safe. And anybody who's driving should turn off the radio right now, but could you teach our listeners a kind of brief technique as to like, well, what would it be like to begin a hypnotic session? And of course you have a magnificent voice for hypnosis. So <laughs> could you give us just a little taste? Sure. But you know, you're right. If you're driving, don't do this. Um, yeah, turn you know, off when, the radio. When automobiles were invented, actually, there were laws passed against windshield wipers, because you may remember that the old image of the hypnotist was the sure. dangling watch. Yeah. So they were afraid that people's eyes would follow the windshield wipers and they'd go into hypnotic state. Didn't happen. But <laughs> um, so don't stop driving if you're listening. But sure, get as comfortable as you can. Uh, on one, do one thing, look up. On two, do two things. Slowly close your eyes and take a deep breath. And on three, do three things. Let your breath out. Let your eyes relax, but keep them closed. Let your body float. And then let one hand or the other float up in the air like a balloon. Notice how quickly and easily you can begin to use your store of memories and your imagination to help yourself and your body feel better. Imagine you're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or just floating in space. Take in a breath, stop, and then fill your lungs completely and slowly exhale through your mouth. 
Now notice how quickly and easily you can help yourself and your body feel better. And then when you're ready to come out, just count backwards from three to one. On three, get ready. Two, with your eyelids closed, roll up your eyes. One, let your eyes open. Your hand float back down, make a fist open, and that's the end of the exercise. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, Hope you're both feeling better. Feeling much better. (laughs) And I was already feeling pretty relaxed just talking with you. Can you give us some, you know, we hate to use this term, case examples stories i mean you know a lot of a lot of your colleagues go oh that doesn't count we have to do a randomized double blind placebo controlled trial with thousands of people uh, and, and, and of course you just told us about a very impressive trial that you published in the lancet in 2000 but but people right. learn best from stories yeah. and so i wonder if you have a sure. case example where somebody was either in pain or was addicted to cigarettes or couldn't sleep or some other thing that comes to mind where hypnosis sure. really made a difference well, well, we, we had one uh, woman uh, who uh, came to one of our studies when we first did the Alexa app experiment, and she said, I smoked for 25 years. I didn't even want to stop smoking, but I was curious, so I went in. The first time you showed us how to do it, because we were, it was a study, so we it wasn't all remote, um, uh, she said, ah, I, I don't like this. But she went home that night, she listened to the app, and she lit up a cigarette, and she looked at it, and she said, feh. Who needs this? (laughs) And she put it down and put it out. And she hasn't smoked a cigarette since. And she said, I didn't even want to smoke. My friends couldn't believe it. Uh, She said, you know, this is some crazy ass voodoo. And I mean that in a good way. (laughs) And she's going around helping her friends stop smoking. (laughs) So what what is interesting about hypnosis and what gets mobilized in reverie is um, it's it's different from traditional psychotherapy in that there that's sort of top down. You know, the Freud, Freud actually started his research in in therapy using hypnosis. It was the first treatment huh. he used. He studied it with the great French uh, psychologist Jean Martin Charcot. Uh, he was a neurologist actually, and and um, he uh, then decided to switch to talking to people about their projected fantasies on him, the transference and so on. Um, but um, the idea and the idea in cognitive behavioral therapy too is understand how you can use cognitive processes to control your impulses. Hypnosis is kind of the opposite. We start from the bottom up rather than the top down. We get you in a position where you can see what it would be like to feel different. Is it possible that you can make yourself feel less pain, to handle your stress better, to approach the urge to smoke from a different point of view, and then see if you can do it. Because one of the things that happens in the brain is that you turn down activity in the posterior cingulate cortex. That's part of what we call the default mode network, where you reflect on who you are or what people think about you. And the nice thing about hypnosis is you can you can suppress that for a while and just see what it would be like to be different. And once you have that expression of being different, you can continue doing it. It sounds like that might actually be quite useful for someone with severe social anxiety. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm also wondering about people who have performance anxiety, you know, getting ready to perform at a piano recital, for example, or perhaps on stage or give a speech. 
Is there a way that hypnotherapy could help such folks? Absolutely. We get them there. We get them controlling their physiological hyperarousal, which, of course, makes them feel worse and worse. The more they physically anxious they get, the more trouble they have. And for performance anxiety, we have them concentrate on, on a th- being a three-legged stool. That's stable. You want to think about what you're saying. You want to think about the audience you're speaking to, and you want to think about how you're doing doing it. If you focus on any one of those, you're going to lose the other two. So the idea is to sort of move around and use the self-hypnosis to keep yourself balanced by keeping a balance between connecting with your audience, evaluating how you're doing, and thinking about the content you're presenting. And we find uh, that that can be very helpful to people. It's also helpful for treating phobias. I'll tell you one story. My, my late father was treating a social worker in New York who had a horrible dog phobia. And she was at a fancy dinner. Somebody walked in with a cute little French poodle. She was so scared. She jumped up, knocked the table over, spilled all the food on everyone. Her husband said, get fixed or go away, you know. And so she went to my father. He taught her with hypnosis to be able with a friend holding a dog to just walk up and pet it and understand the difference between a wild and a tame animal. And um, after a while, she said, I could do it. I was so proud of myself. Six months later, he called to see how she was doing. And a little boy answered the phone and he said, is your mama there? And he said, yeah, who's calling? And he said, Dr. Spiegel. And there was a long pause and the boy said, that's funny. Spiegel's in heat. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. So, so, she did so well that she got a dog and named it Spiegel. <laughs> now, I'm imagining that many of the health professionals who are listening to us right now, MDs, psychologists, nurse practitioners, PAs, they're, they're going, well, this sounds pretty exciting Maybe I could learn how to do hypnotherapy because I've been writing all these prescriptions for diazepam and various other medications for anxiety and uh, drugs to go to sleep at night, and they all have side effects. But wouldn't it be cool if I could do hypnotherapy? Who, how, where would people go to be able to be certified or learn how to do this in a way that is acceptable to other health professionals? Well, that would be wonderful. And I I would suggest that one way to start is to just listen to Reverie and see how I do it, because that's part of how I teach. And I try ask professionals to try listening to it, try it for yourself, see what it's like. We offer courses. The funny thing is there are courses about hypnosis in the best medical schools, but not most medical schools. We offer a course here at Stanford. There are courses at Harvard and elsewhere. Um, but there are also the two professional hypnosis societies that have workshops and annual meetings that teach licensed and trained professionals to use hypnosis. Um, uh, but I, I would like for more people, more professionals to use it. And I've been teaching it my entire career. We have a textbook, as I mentioned, called Trance and Treatment, Clinical Uses of Hypnosis, that teaches people how to do it. Um, but I think what, I, what I'm hoping is that uh, many more professionals will recommend and use Reverie itself. And then when more complex problems come up, they might then take the time and effort to learn to do it and help their own patients. And I would love to see that happen. Now, you have suggested that uh, professionals could turn to the 
professional societies. Would you name them again? Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis and the American Society for Clinical Hypnosis. There's also a Division 30, the Hypnosis Division of the American Psychological Association. And I uh, trust that these would also be great sources if a patient needed a referral to a qualified therapist. Absolutely. But also you can go to very often primary care docs know some uh, respected person in the community who uses hypnosis as well. So that's another source. We have one minute left, Dr. Spiegel. If you could summarize for our listeners, what are some of the things that hypnotherapy can help them with? Hypnosis can help a great deal and often very quickly with pain, with stress, anxiety, with focus, with planning your work activity, with transitioning from work uh, to home and back, um, with sleep, with insomnia. It can help you stop smoking, eat better, eat more healthily, either maintain your weight or, uh, or control it, reduce it if you want to. Uh, it can help you control other bad habits like problems with alcohol and substances. Um, so the kind of mind-body problems, behavior-related problems and stress-related problems are things that hypnosis can be very helpful with. Dr. David Spiegel, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. You're most welcome, Terry and Joe. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. David Spiegel. He is Wilson Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Director of the Center on Stress and Health, and Medical Director of the Center for Integrative Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiegel has more than 40 years of clinical and research experience studying psycho-oncology, stress and health, pain control, sleep, hypnosis, and conducting randomized clinical trials involving psychotherapy for cancer patients. He is the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Reverie, an interactive hypnosis app. We want you to know that despite our enthusiasm for that tool, we have no financial relationship with Dr. Spiegel or the Reverie app. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wodarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with the People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. During this National Wellness Month, you can take care of your heart and brain health by adding cocoflavanols to your daily routine for a strong heart and cognitive support. How can Cocovia be a part of your wellness habits? More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,354. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments about today's interview. Let us know what kinds of experience you have had with hypnosis. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. When you subscribe, you also have regular access to information about our weekly podcast. You could find out ahead of time what topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week.
Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show is a free podcast, takes time, and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.